Glad to be here with you all this morning. Uh, for those of you who might be new in the room, uh, my name is Paul. I'm a, I serve here as an elder, and uh, I get the privilege of being able to, to bring God's word this morning um, as our senior pastor is taking a, uh, a much-needed break this afternoon or this evening, or this morning, rather, sitting with us and worshiping with us. And uh, I'm uh, going to really preach, and, and hopefully he gets convicted. <laughs> So anyhow, um, what an amazing series uh, Brave in the New World has been that our senior pastor Tony has been, has been leading in us, uh, leading us in. And it's been, it's been good for us to, to have some, some view and some think on some topics of our culture that they think differently than we do. And, and they maybe examine some of our own hearts to see if we're being influenced more by our culture uh, over the word of God. Um, so we get that, uh, we'll get that full series uploaded to the vault on our website. Um, that way, if you, know, if you happen to miss some um, or if you've got a friend that you want to uh, you know, be able to target and, and point them to that, uh, we'll get that on there this week. Uh, I feel like I'm switching into announcements mode here. Um, but no, it's been good. It's been good to have that, uh, have that series. And I've had some upfront and honest conversations uh, with people because of it. And sometimes, you know, breaking that, that barrier of safe, you know, is kind of needed uh, for growth and maturity. And uh, I think at times we, we're prone to kind of misidentify God as safe. You know, I love the, uh, the quote in the Chronicles of Narnia when it's speaking of the character, the Aslan, who's the Christ-like figure there. And, and it's asked of him, is he safe? You know, and it's, you know, safe. You know, that's not even a thing. <laughs> but it says, uh, no, he said, the, the quote is, uh, you know, who, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. So today we're looking at a passage from Mark uh, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. So if you have your Bibles, you can begin uh, turning in there. And this is where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. I had a professor tell me a while back that uh, the, the, the battle for Jesus to be obedient was not on the cross, but it was in the Garden and I think that's true. And I hope today's look at this garden, it stretches your perception of him. And uh, I know it has mine. And I think this is, uh, this is definitely not a safe passage. So I said that we're looking at uh, Mark today, and it's going to be a very meaningful and impactful moment in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, they just spent time together uh, celebrating their traditional Passover meal, and this one, it proved to be uh, probably a little bit different than, than most that they had experienced. Uh, one of those profound differences was Jesus telling them that one of them would betray him. You know, that's, that's not really the message you want to hear at a celebratory meal, uh, but that's what they had. Um, and as he said, it would be the one who dipped his bread in the dish with him. And of course, they probably all had done that. And so distraught at this statement, they all began asking emphatically, not I, Lord, not I. But also during this Passover meal, Jesus shared an experience that we continue to share today, as many of you know. Uh, he broke some bread, and as Jesus spoke of it, he, he spoke as if it was the, his body broken for them. And he also, they shared a glass of wine, and Jesus spoke of it as if it were his blood poured out for many. So amongst other, thing, other things, they sang a song, and then they headed out to the Mount of Olives, which is east of, uh, east of Jerusalem there. 
And so on the way, Jesus spoke to them again on how they would desert him. And Peter, uh, who's believed to be Mark's source for the content of this gospel, he's probably getting aggravated at this point that Jesus keeps drawing their attention to the fact that they're going to disappoint him. And Jesus told them that the shepherd will be struck and that the sheep will scatter. But when he is raised up, he'll go before them. And he's telling them about the path that they're soon to be on. And I'm sure to give them hope and, and to give them strength. But Peter doesn't hear when I rise and I will go before you. Peter's already wanting to argue and already wanting to, to disagree. And he says, even if all fall away, I will not. Jesus, I know that you can point at that fig tree and you can make the leaves wither, but you don't get to put this on me. You don't get to say that I'm going to betray you. And Jesus looks him square in the eyes and says, Peter, three times tonight you will deny me. And so they arrived at their destination as we have arrived at our text this morning. So if you would look to your Bibles now as I read uh, Mark 14, 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and he said to him, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible from you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed the same words. And again, he found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So after the years of ministry together and this final night of instruction, warnings, fellowship, and singing, which Jesus had said and done to prepare them for what is about to happen, he too needs to be prepared. And he does this through prayer. He said, sit here while I pray. So as with narratives, uh, there are, are several things that we can glean from this text, but as we look for an overarching plot and what it communicates. So even as Jesus, in brief this instant in Jesus' life is, we see a setting, a general plot, a rise of tension, the climax, and then a resolved state. So our general plot is, is Jesus needing to pray because he's every bit as human as we are. Now him needing to pray and him going to pray, this really isn't anything new to us. As we read through the gospels occasionally in our daily time of word or, or as the disciples who walked with him for years, it wasn't new to them either. Jesus often went off to pray. It's not surprising then that Jesus told his disciples to, to sit here while he goes and prays. Let me veer off the path here for a minute. Um, the, the setting here, it's, it's late. It's probably 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. Now, I, I'm sure most of you understand this, but they didn't have smartphones back then. 
They weren't able to, you know, check Facebook or, or, or play a game or, or, you know, take a selfie in the Olive Garden. But I want to, I want to test your, 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 your judgment here. I want to test your assessment, uh, okay? So a disciple, all right, that's, that's one who, who follows their teacher, follows their master. They subject themselves to live as he lives and to do as he does. And this is what they've been doing since he called them and said, follow me. For three years, this is what they've been doing. And so if Jesus says to them, sit here while I go pray, what do you think they should be doing? Bingo! guys are smart fantastic right on it you're getting it when they're not praying so but as you might have guessed from the title of this message this isn't going to be about praying effectively or or a theological apologetic on prayer rather it's about timing and not really answering the question of when is the right time to pray is, but timing in the sense of what do we do while we wait? What do we do while we live in a world that's in opposition to God? Well, Jesus' actions here are speaking louder than his words. So I said Jesus is every bit as human as we are, and, and, and maybe some of you are stuck on that statement, uh, reeling a little bit. But then again, maybe some of you are, are readily identify with Jesus' humanity, but, but you struggle with his deity. Uh, we'll get to that too, but first, let's, let's take a look at these verses here in Mark in light of what we read about Jesus from the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a Great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So looking back to verse 33, and he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So as soon as he started to separate from the others, and he was with his small group here, he quickly moved to transparency and vulnerability. Now, these three guys, they've, they've been through some amazing things. A, a young girl a while back had died, and Jesus only let these three follow him into the house. He then kicked out everyone else except the parents, Peter, James, and John. And then he brought the girl back to life. These three men were also with him when his physical appearance was changed, when they had an encounter with people who, who died hundreds of years ago. But this time, here in the garden, the amazingly perplexing circumstance was Jesus' descent into a depressive state. He said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He expressed to them how he was hopeless in anguish. So reading to the end of Mark, we can, we can know that, he, that he's sorrowful over the cross that he's about to endure. But how can he be sorrowful unto death about dying? I think it's because at this point, that in all of his, his existence as being one with the Father, 
the Father in him and he in the Father. His divine place in the Trinity that is forever expressed, experienced as his reality, except at this one point in time where he experiences a chasm, a break, a separation, because he's taking on our sin, taking on our curse from our rebellious hearts. And so he who is without sin became sin for us. And here in the garden, it's, it's crushing him. If you've ever gone through something traumatic, you, you know you always feel it. We understand that. It's always there. You always remember it. But when there's, there's healing and grace on the other side of it, we can, we can remember it in contrast to our present peace. So maybe Jesus in his, his eternal state before the foundations of the world, he was able to remember the cross, but it was always in contrast to his present state of peace and grace and knowing that he's uh, the redemption for us all. But here in Mark, here in the garden, he's drawing to that moment where the memories will be transversed the darkness and separation will overshadow the memory of peace, culminating to that moment on the cross where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was hopeless in anguish. He was heading to a point in his entire existence where he would truly be alone and there was nothing to change it. And so he went a little further and he fell on the ground as if his legs had lost the support to support his own weight. I know the feeling of falling to the ground in an open field crying out to God, I don't want to do this anymore. At this point, Jesus was tempted to give up. His humanity couldn't bear it. My Lord was tempted as I was. But as always, he had his mind on those he loves his concern for his disciples and for us during this present dark time of his. And so he led those sitting outside of the garden by example. And now he's a little more specific in leading these band of brothers. Instead of just saying, sit here while I pray, he is seeking to convince them just as Mark is seeking to convince us that we are called to be the watch in the night. Even in his sorrow, he he said to his small group, remain here and watch. There's a sense of, of being on guard with watchfulness. Jesus posted his disciples as sentries at the entrance of the garden, and now he's instructing those close to him to be on watch, to be on guard. It's not surprising then that we read down further in Mark 14 of an armed group moving in on his position. So in one sense, Jesus is telling them to be on guard for an approaching enemy is coming. And that's true for us today as well, is it not? Although our enemy is not a crowd with swords and clubs, our enemy comes in the form of things like apathy. It convinces us that contentment is to, is to not care, to not be concerned. It tells us the lie that, that I'm okay with how things are, but that's not contentment. Contentment, rather, is an exercise in trust. 
We learn to be content in plenty and in want because we can face any of those situations because we have the resolve of Christ imparted to us by God's Spirit. But we're not to be content with the spread of the gospel. We're not to be content with our devotion to Christ. We're not to be content with our adoration and praise of God. We're not to be content in how we love and show honor to one another. Paul wrote to the Philippians to push forward to the goal to win the prize. There's no contentment in prize winning. So we must be watchful for apathy creeps in through many subtle ways. Like the stress of life that pushes our minds towards wanting relaxation. Dreaming about not having to do so much. Look, I get it. I'm prone to want to relax. You know, since I manage shifts that span from 5 a.m. to 12 a.m., there's only about five hours of the day that I'm not on call. And then they expect me to actually show up and go to work too. It's crazy. But when I get home, that's when things really get busy. So here's our, our, our weekly schedule. Okay, daily homeschooling, as close to daily as we can get, All right? Larray is working two part-time jobs right now. I work in a block from either on the front end or the back end of 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., depending on the day. So Monday, Monday nights, typically elder meetings, so I get dropped off there, and Larray takes Maya to her point class, uh, and then with those both end around 9 p.m., On Tuesday nights, we do a once-over for our house so that our small group can meet there. We take Mason to robotics and then Maya uh, to student teach uh, at Richland, and then all that wraps up around 9 p.m. Wednesday nights, we take our oldest kids to Harvest Kids, and Jasper Lynn goes to point class at 7.30, and then we all get back home around 9 p.m. Thursday nights, Mason is taken to robotics right after I get off work at 4.30, Elise is is taken to tab class at 6.15, and then Mason is picked back up from robotics at 6.30. Then Maya has ballet from 7 to 8.30 p.m., and then we all get home around 9 o'clock p.m. Friday, Friday is an amazing day (laughs) because we only have two dance classes and we're done by 7. It's fantastic. But in all of this, we still have, you know, laundry and dishes and other daily chores. And now that I'm in school, I'm needing to read 100 to 200 pages a week, maintain an active presence in online discussion boards, and complete two to three assignments weekly. These either put me late into the night on the weekdays or they consume most of my weekend. So like I said, I get it wanting to relax. I even try to justify it in my mind and say and call it rest, right? We're supposed to take rest. It's biblical. It's commanded even, yeah? The problem is my rest, it typically does not include things like prayer, Bible study, spending time with God, which is where our true rest is. It usually has to do with me avoiding any type of responsibility, I want to relax and not have to care about anything. But that's dangerous. 
because there's an apathetic mob that's looking for me to join their ranks. We must be the watch in the night. Not only because there's external forces that would push against us, but the internal, internal forces that wage war on our intimacy with God. Jesus calls us to vigilance. He displays this vigilance by showing intimacy with God is not just knowing God's possibilities, but being aligned to his will. Look back at Mark in verse 36 with Jesus' prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible from you, for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is such a great display of being watchful. He prayed, not my will. Remember, Jesus said that he is sorrowful, even to death. But where does he turn? Where does he go? He goes to God in prayer, crying out, Father, Father. He knew this cup was coming. There was a conversation he had a while back with his disciples. Opportunity to draw out of, of the heart of James and John who asked to sit at his right and left in the kingdom. He responded to them, will you drink the cup of suffering that I drink, that I go through? Knowing this cup of suffering and judgment was coming, he looks to his father, his dad, and prays. Well, what exactly does he pray for? Mark gives us a commentary in verse 35 that he prayed, if it were possible, this cup might pass from him. But this if, it's not a questioning of God's capabilities. For we see he said, all things are possible for you. Jesus in anguish is crying out, I know you can do all things. I was there and experienced firsthand how you made something from nothing. How you spoke into existence things that were not I have seen you give order to the chaos and orient the universe. You took the dust out of the ground and you made for yourself image bearers. God, you are capable of doing everything. Father, my father, there is nothing beyond your capability. Make something happen. What Jesus prays next is absolutely amazing. He didn't ask. He told God to remove the cup. It's an imperative. It's a command. Father, you are infinitely creative and make possibilities out of that which is impossible. Make a way. Yes, Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not my will, but your will. Jesus' vigilance brings about his resolve towards obedience. He prayed in earnest, bearing it all, and through it was given strength to continue. But I want you to notice something. This prayer is not a, a one and done kind of deal. See there in verse 39, we see that he again went further into the garden and he prayed the same prayer 
And in verse 41, we read that he came a third time. So in over and over, Jesus goes and prays and he comes back. And he goes and prays and he comes back. And he goes and he prays the same thing each time, telling God, remove the cup. And each time being strengthened in his resolve to be obedient to the Father's will. That is being watchful. Sadly, his disciples disappointed him in this moment. But I believe Mark includes that so that we will do differently. This is all through a narrative that shows that God uses testing to refine us. The enemy tests us to break us. Look at verse 37. Then he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? He found them sleeping. You know what, though? I, I recall a, uh, in reading in Mark a few pages back where the disciples were distressed and, and afraid and Jesus was sleeping. And I cannot help but think that Mark is using some irony here to, to point out something quite astonishing. So in the midst of this, this storm that, that's threatened to capsize their boat and drown everybody aboard, Jesus was sleeping. And the disciples, they rushed to him and they woke him and pleaded for him for their lives to be spared. And at their behest, Jesus stood up and he spoke peace. And the waves subsided. The wind died down. The clouds parted in the sky, revealing a clear sky. The entire time, Jesus was never bothered. He wasn't anxious or worried In fact, he questioned where their faith was in that moment. So here in the garden, the question we need to be asked, the question the disciples should have been asking is is if Jesus in, in, in the moment of clear and present danger of that storm isn't bothered, but yet now something, something has got him so gripped to his core that he's shaking visibly, what in the world could that be? Yet his small group here, they didn't notice. He asked them to be the watch in the night and he found them sleeping on the job. They didn't pray for him even though he was vulnerable to share his fearful soul. But even more disappointing, they were not praying for themselves to be submissive to God's will. Jesus is now urging them to take this moment seriously. He says to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This very hour, Jesus was experiencing what a willing spirit and a weak flesh feels like and looks like, and he was praying because of it. And he knew they needed to as well for what they were about to face. So being watchful, it can also have this sense of being active and awake Luke wrote, blessed are those servants who master finds them awake when he comes. So Jesus now specifically calls them to prayer because being watchful is not simply observing. It is to actively participate in waiting through prayer. In other words, being a guard, being a lookout means nothing if you're not prepared to fight. And the battle here that we need to be in vigilant prayer about. It's not one that we fight with weapons made from this world's material, but
but weapons made from another. Weapons forged of will and obedience, dependence and trust, faith and love. These will find ourselves strengthened in the time of need, and without them, we'll be broken to pieces. This isn't something that we muster up ourselves. This isn't the fact that we pray, therefore we receive strength, like prayer is some sort of idol that controls God and makes him do what we want. It's that when our prayers are like the ones Jesus prays here, open and honest, direct with God, and ultimately submissive to his will, it's in these we will find resolve. I recently got sucked down a YouTube black hole. If you don't know what that is, uh, online videos, they, they show a video and at the end of it, there's another video that begins to play that's either linked to it or uh, somehow re- uh, relevant, sometimes not. I, I usually don't, fall for this. Uh, I'm usually diligent and, and, and don't, uh, don't give way, but it was, it was a moment of weakness. And a uh, video popped up and it's for a Cornerstone Music Festival in 1970s. I was intrigued because I attended this festival for, for you know, 10 years, close off and on uh, at the end of uh, 19, 1900s. <laughs> But anywho, as I watched this video, I saw, I saw a thumbnail for another video off to the side, you know, further getting sucked into the black hole. And it was for a, 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 a Jars of Clay concert at the 1997 Cornerstone Music Festival. Of course, I played it. I'm in the YouTube black hole. It's what happens. But I was amazed at how, uh, how vivid my memory was because uh, I was there and, and hid the shirt that the lead singer had on. Like, I remember that shirt. I remember it. And then the beach ball bouncing across the crowd. I'm like, yes, the beach ball, the lights, the red and the, and the blue and the white and shining everywhere. And it was like I was there again. It's a memory that sticks in my mind because it was at that concert that I truly had a life-altering experience. I submitted to God fully and trusting my entire life to his direction. It's in submission that we find ourselves strengthened to carry on. And so we go to him in prayer. And it's not a prayer of God, I'll do anything you want if, if you just fill in the blank. Rather, it's God, heal my body. Yet whatever comes about, I trust in you. God, restore my marriage. Yet whatever comes about, I trust in you. God, change our finances. Yet whatever comes about, I trust in you. God, please save our child. Yet whatever comes about, we trust in you. And still he found them sleeping. Three times he found them sleeping. 
And now here we're getting to the climax of this mini narrative and can really grasp what Mark is looking to convey, namely that now is, the, now is not the time to rest, but to stay awake and pray. Reading from verse 40, again he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And when he found them sleeping, he said, enough and rise. So after coming back from praying the same words, it appears Jesus woke them again and he acquired of why they were taking this time to sleep instead of pray. And they had no excuses. They were without words. It's interesting that Mark uses this phrase because he did so once before back on that mountain when Jesus' appearance was changed and Moses and Elijah appeared before them. And Peter said, let's build three tents and and you all can stay up here on this mountain. Mark tells us that Peter said this because Peter didn't know what to say. He didn't have categories to understand what he was experiencing. And so he just, he said something. (laughs) It's what Peter does. It's what I do. But so here in the garden, Peter again is without words to categorize his lack of commitment in this moment. But Jesus comes back the third time and his question does not even pull them out of their slumber. It's as if he's exhausted from, care, from prayer and concern for his followers. He quietly approaches and he softly asks, are you asleep? And with no response, I imagine Jesus sitting quietly praying over his beloved disciples. I do wonder uh, how Mark knows this. <laughs> you know, he's writing down Peter's stories for this gospel, and, and Peter at this point was asleep. And so I think maybe, you know, maybe when Jesus and Peter were sitting by the fire, and uh, after Jesus, you know, arose from the dead and they were eating fish, and Peter remembering how Jesus said he, he would deny him three times. And so he's recalling how he disappointed him in the garden and how he lashed out in an effort to make up for his failure and prove himself, and how he denied even knowing him. And then he asked, what happened when you came back that last time? You were just there when we awoke. And so maybe Jesus told him, I asked if you were awake, and I decided to let you sleep until it was time. When it was time, Jesus said, enough. Be done with that. The time to pray had passed and the moment of dread was upon him. Jesus had fought his battle and was ready to face what lies ahead. The disciples had been sleeping and are ill prepared for what is to come. And Jesus, just as they said the sheep would scatter, they did in absolute panic and confusion. Mark tells us later on that even a young man who was following Jesus was seized, but he wiggled out of his garment and he was able to run away naked. They all ran. And as Jesus feared, he was getting more alone by the minute. Yet his resolve to obey the Father was increasing moment 
a moment. I've been reading a book uh, for one of my classes. It's called The Principle of the Path. And this, uh, the premise of this book is, uh, is how direction, not intention, determines our destination. And so we can see this principle kind of at play in this passage with Jesus praying and urging his disciples to pray. A life of watchful prayer is, is direction that sets a course of trust and reliance upon God. A life of sleeping is a direction that leads to confusion and chaos, being blown and tossed by the wind. But in chapter 10 of this book, the author describes King David's lack of response to his son's behavior and how that leads to more trouble. Then he relates the point to where David is on the Mount of Olives. He's shoeless and he's full of sorrow to Jesus at the same location, but years apart as he too is full of sorrow. The difference between David and Jesus, between Jesus and his disciples, is that his prayer while waiting is a prayer waiting on God trusting in God for whatever and whenever. And we are called to follow Jesus and to be watchful. But we must not also forget the lesson that we see with the disciples who were not. And they ran out of time to be watchful. Prayer prepares us for what lies ahead. Prayer protects us from the enemy's schemes. Prayer positions us to be in a proper alignment with God. And prayer in the waiting space is to be watchful. In a world that continually seeks to absorb us into the temporary, we must remain watchful in prayer with our eye on the eternal, always trusting. The time to be watchful is now.